Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. The, the systems that, ba- that anchor on a number feel inherently unfair. They feel like you have no control. And they, you know, they literally label people as a number, which except for the people given the A, which is only a small percentage, is really, really unnecessarily you know, stressful. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my recently hanging out with me in Maine co-host, Rodney Evans. Hello. I feel very tired, but also very (laughs) fulfilled from Portland. We are also joined today by David Rock, the co-founder and CEO of the Neuro Leadership Institute, a cognitive science consultancy. And David is the author of four books, including Quiet Leadership and Your Brain at Work, and helps host the Neuroleadership Institute's podcast, also called Your Brain at Work. David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Aaron and Rodney. Good to be here with you. Yeah. On today's episode, we're going to talk about just that, your brain and what's going on with it at work. Mm. But before we do that, we're going to play with our brains in something we like to call the check-in round. So we are going to start this episode like every episode we have ever done of this show with a check-in question that each of us answers in turn. As a reminder, this is to get present, to have equal airtime, to get to know each other a little bit. The question for today is, what is something that nearly always makes you smile? And we'll go Aaron, then David, then me. (laughs) I would say small mammals. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm going small mammals. If if there's like a very little chipmunk in the mountains who's got a nut or something like that and is very excited <laughs> about it, that's I'm for sure going to be giggling and having fun with that. Thanks. Yep. David? Uh, playing the bongos. Nice. It's a story to that, but I'll keep <laughs> short. But I've been drumming since I was a kid, and I discovered maybe 20 years ago that carrying around drums was a pain in the butt. But carrying around a pair of bongos on a stand with sticks at a party is super fun. If the music's loud enough and it's dance music and everyone actually starts dancing, if I if I don't focus on me and trying to show off, I actually focus on finding a finding like a layer in the music that could be interesting to add that fits in with the music. And then I just I kind of become the music and everyone dances more and I have an amazing time. So I have an, an alter ego named Bongo Man who just uh, my uh, my tagline is the world's most famous uninvited performer. Oh my God, I love it. That's amazing. I turn up to some crazy places and perform completely uninvited. It's pretty funny. I I appreciate the clarification of completely uninvited. Um, For me, of course, it's dog related because I'm obsessed with my dogs. What I love is our younger dog, Rosie, in the morning. So Rosie still sleeps in a crate because she's a maniac. And in the morning, when Ed releases her, she jumps on our bed and then she 
is as happy as any living thing has ever been in its life. For about <laughs> three to four minutes, she makes a sound that is somewhere between like a gremlin and I don't, I, I can't even describe it while she just like rolls around and is blissful. And it, even if it's earlier, even if it's like today where I, I got in late and I'm sleepy, I cannot not smile at her as she just is so thrilled by the breaking of a new day in our bed. That's so great. I can picture all that. (laughs) I love it. That's amazing. Okay. So today's topic is the neuroscience-informed future of work. And I guess I'd like to start by asking you, David, you coined the term neuroleadership. So what is it? And and we would like to hear also, what is it not? Some great questions. You know, it kind of happened by accident in 2007. I'd been... um, I'd been working with like neuroscience in some programs I was creating for leaders and also for coaches. And I'd been including like little snippets of neuroscience from books that I'd read and courses I'd done. And I'd been studying privately science. I got more formal into study more recently, but I started including things. And I just, I found that the, the leaders and coaches got so much like real value from understanding the actual mechanics of what was happening during interactions that it just like it just made people better leaders and better coaches and it there was so much energy in it that I, I just couldn't help but kind of want to explore it. You know, they they say follow the money. I like to follow the energy. Mm. And it just I just like I wanted to get people together that I that I'd studied with and interviewed and companies. I was just like, if we could just get together and talk, something amazing could happen. And I ended up convening a, a conference in Europe, which I called the first uh, global neuroleadership summit. And then Business Week picked up the concept and published a big story about it, announcing the launch of this new field. I'm like, okay, I guess I've launched a new field. But um, And then suddenly we're running conferences every year and doing research and publishing a journal. So they were kind of right. But it's, you know, it, it could be lots of different things. You know, it could be like trying to put leaders' brains through fMRI and seeing if you can work out what makes a good leader. And it's definitely not that. Mm-hmm. It could be, you know, tracking the data of people as they interact with others and doing a huge data analysis, and it's definitely not that. It could be trying to teach leaders to be neuroscientists, and it's definitely not that. <laughs> um, you know, what what it is, it's expanding the vocabulary. It's expanding leaders' vocabulary around the human side of leadership such that they, they've, they've got a lot more understanding of the landscape and a lot more kind of dexterity, like ability to intervene in the landscape. And the, so it's, it's really building a language for leadership. And, and we talked about, talked about that for a long time. It's building a new language for leadership, but it's, it's, you know, when you start to understand the brain as a leader, you see a whole lot of things you don't normally see or understand. And it becomes a little bit like that moment in the matrix where Neo suddenly sees all the data Mm-hmm. Um, like you can literally be in a meeting and, and, and understand exactly what's happening in people's brains when things go awry and, and do things differently than if you didn't understand, you know, the way. So, so it's basically a field that's building a, a much richer vocabulary that's, that's based on what actually happens in the brain that's sticky enough that people can recall and use different strategies as they lead. So it's about, mm. it's not about this, this one type of leader that's right. It's not about, you know, one model for leadership. It's about, it's about making leaders more accurate in the moment in, in, in understanding what's happening in front of them. So it's really about the interactions between leaders and others and making them better quality. What about everybody else? Why just leaders? 
Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it, the work's really expanded now to everyone. For a long time, it was kind of we only work with leaders and managers. And now most of our work is with basically the whole organization is learning about the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the scale of maybe 100,000 or 200,000 people, you know, all at the same time. So it's it's definitely shifted from you know, just managing people and leading to just, you know, better interactions by understanding the brain more broadly. Mm. So whether talking about leaders and managers or the workforce writ large, why should people spend time thinking about this? Why should why should <laughs> we spend time thinking about our brains and how they're being used or abused during the workday? Oh, I mean, we got three days. I'll give you a three-day answer. <laughs> There's so much to say. There's so much to say, you know. I mean, the, 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 you know, the cliff note is successful leadership from a brain perspective is maintaining a certain state of mind where you're able to think really deep, complex thoughts when the outside world is actually putting this pressure on you that shrinks your working memory and your capacity for creative thinking, right? So, so a big part of, of leadership or just, you know, for any employee is maintaining the ability to think well mm-hmm. and, you know, uncertainty really reduces that and feeling out of control reduces that and feeling other people are against you reduces that and, you know, just pushing yourself too much reduces that. But, you know, ultimately most work is thinking work, right? Yeah. It's not, there's not that much process work. It's thinking work and it's often deep thinking work. And so, you know, this is about maintaining the ability to think well and increasing your ability to influence other people's thinking. So, you know, think better and, you know, increase other people's thinking better or or impact other people's thinking better. So, you know, it's those two things. I mean, one simple answer to give you is, you know, the best strategy for dealing with kind of outside forces that are shrinking your brain is to, is to understand what's happening in your brain, Mm -hmm. like, like specifically. So the more you understand what's going on moment to moment, the more you can redirect your attention to more effective strategies. So it's just, I mean, it's really everything across decision-making, you know, creative work, you know, managing your emotions, collaborating with each other, driving change. I mean, across all those domains, there's really dozens of insights that make you basically more adaptive. You know, and I'll give you one quick example that's sort of fun. It's my favorite area of study. You know, if you, if you understand the, the way insights happen in the brain, Mm-hmm. You you can go from having like, you know, one or two big ideas a month that really mm-hmm. motivate you to one or two big ideas a day. Okay. Mm. And and you can massively increase not just your creativity, but your problem solving ability by just understanding the the the, the process of of the, that your brain goes through and having an insight. Now that's one quick example. So now as a leader, you can then apply that to your team and you can stop trying to brainstorm the heck out of people, which does nothing for real creativity and you'll, you know, you'll, you'll literally change how you run meetings that radically increases the number of breakthrough ideas. So, you know, that's just one example anchored on creativity, but it starts with understanding the actual mechanisms of what's happening in your brain, you know, in real time as we interact. Yeah. Okay. So that's super intriguing. Can you maybe unpack a little bit about how that process works? Or you talk about going from two insights a month to two a day. We want some of that. Yeah, what's yeah. underneath that? How does that? How would you actually coach someone on that? Yeah, I mean, I've written about this extensively. We've published two, you know, really serious research papers on it as well. So there's a lot to say, but the, you know, if I had to summarize it in one sentence, a very short sentence, it's you know, it's pay attention to quiet signals. Mm. Mm. So, 
So insights are the non-conscious regions of your brain solving the problem for you, which happens as soon as you kind of plug in a question. But the non-conscious regions of the brain are, are, have a much lower ambient electrical activity than like everyday thought. So if you're you know, sitting there trying to work out when to schedule a meeting, you might involve you know, a billion neurons you know, processing all this information. But the answer to should you even have that meeting or not might be 100 neurons deep. Mm. Um, and you can't hear the 100 neurons under, under the billion neurons. So anything that helps you pay attention to quiet signals significantly increases insight. And, you know, we studied the exact mechanisms of this. It turns out that, you know, there's a basic condition, which is just low overall activation of the brain, which means don't look at your emails first thing in the morning or yeah. when you go for a run or, you know, before you go to sleep, like leave space for your brain to be less animated, right? Less, just working less. It turns out you have a lot more insights when you frame something slightly positively than slightly negatively. So, you know, where's the opportunity here versus what's the problem here? And you have a lot more insights basically because your brain is quieter when you're positively oriented than negatively oriented. And, and you also need to shut out external stimuli. So most people kind of roll their eyes up or, you know, just stop listening. And they're, mm -hmm. they're literally putting attention to the internal signals. That's a necessary condition. And then the, the final necessary condition, which is a bit of a quandary to understand it, is, is, is not to work directly on solving the problem. Like right. trying to solve a problem doesn't give you an insight. You've got to actually plug the question in, let it go, and you can work around it by asking more metacognitive questions, but not actively try to solve it. After, you know, after you've tried two or three times and failed. Sure. So those, those four conditions are really reliable, stable, and, and you can literally design you know, meetings and questions and interactions and coaching processes that, that align with those four questions, also four, four qualities, and you get this massive increase in the number of insights. Those are cleverly have. challenging because obviously if you just had no no input signal for 10 years, you never read anything, learned anything, had any conversations, just sat in the woods and meditated. You might have some good ideas, but you'd kind of run out of fodder. So you need input, but then you need time to be quiet and to be reflective so that the neurons that have processed that input can bubble up their their quiet insights, right? Is that yeah. do you find that challenging? Yeah, I mean most of the technology world is is pushing very hard to have you never reflect and never have a quiet moment. <laughs> um, there, there are hundreds of thousands of incredibly smart, passionate people who are making their living distracting you. And, you know, whether it's social media or news or weather or anything else, there's always something to, like, make you not have any downtime. And the brain needs, like, downtime. It needs time where nothing's happening, where you're not being goal-focused, and you're not processing any external stimuli in particular. And it's really, really important for our mental health in every sense of the word to have that downtime. And that's where the insights come from. That's why we have them when we're showering or running or waking up or, you know, daydreaming is because we're not actively doing something with our mind. And the quiet of that allows them to come through. So, you know, the lesson mm. for leaders is like, and for all employees is, you know, leave a couple of hours, ideally in the morning before you check your emails, before you look at your phone to do your deeper thinking work, you know, literally mm -hmm. switch off the internet for your first, even if it's for the first 15 minutes, that's all you can do, but switch off the connections, to the outside world and switch on the connections to the inside world for as long as you can, at least once a day. And you'll find you have dramatically more uh, creative breakthroughs. That's so cool. The other thing that you talking about those four conditions made me think about is the fact that in most 
corporate environments, linear, direct, exhausting, attacking of the problem is the way of working. Right, generally. that's the common. <laughs> generally speaking, it's like we will not leave this room. So, so when you're when you're in companies and you're trying to help break through some of that scar tissue, how do you get them to see that that sort of muscling through really runs counter to what they're trying to do? Oh, I mean, it's a really easy question. I just ask them when do they have their big ideas, mm. and no one says when they sit down and try. Not when they're in the meeting yelling at everyone oh. to have a better idea. That's yeah, not when. It's not when, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's also really interesting that that from at a really basic level in the brain, there are two ways of processing information. You're essentially breaking it apart or putting it together. So, you know, you get a new, new piece of information and you're either going to be deductive and kind of analytical. So you're looking at what that idea is made up of. So you're breaking it down or you're building it up. Right, and the breaking it down is deductive. It's logical, the, the, it, and it sort of feels a bit more concrete, a bit more certain, because you're starting with something and you're breaking it apart, right? But the process of taking an idea and connecting it to new ideas is more uncertain, and uncertainty makes people uncomfortable. Whereas certainty literally increases the reward response in the brain, like certainty of anything. So it's much more certain to you know take a a problem and try to you know deduce the answer than, than, you know, insight your way to the answer. Mm-hmm. It feels uncomfortable to not know. And so, you know, this is what happens. We get, we, we break things down. We build those spreadsheets, those Gantt charts, but we don't, we don't sit quietly and reflect and see if we can insight our way to the answer. So right. interesting. So zooming out, do, do you feel like this way of thinking literally and also thinking about thinking has implications on bigger scales. I, I can see in the day-to-day and in the kind of minutia of, of, of business how it can show up and how we lead and how we make decisions and how we, how we innovate. But what about at a cultural or a societal level? Do you, have you thought about and extrapolated the, the impact of doing this in those settings? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, our, our work, when we're not researching, we're, we're advising companies on you know, applying these, these, these insights. And most of our work is whole of company transformation, not just helping a few people. So last year, for context, it was 5 million people learned about the brain directly from us across some 300 companies. And the, the, it's about really using language to achieve a specific objective. So it's not just let's all learn about the brain. It's let's use the, the, the frame of the brain to achieve something specific. So for example, at Procter & Gamble, it was they, what they wanted to do was be much more innovative and adaptive. And we introduced a whole strategy around having a growth mindset, but all based on how the brain works and giving them just enough brain uh, insights to really power up the habits that they needed to build. And, and so it usually starts with some kind of context. For them, it was that for, for this little company you've heard of called Boeing. Um, you know, we helped them with their whole strategy to create a culture of speaking up. But mm. the, there was this you know, fantastic initiative that we built that impacted you know, most of 140,000 people, like 96% of 140,000 people participated. And there was brain research you know, woven in through the whole thing in the service of creating a culture of speaking up. And what it does is it's not just doesn't just get get more buy-in because you've got lots of engineers. It just gives people a much more tangible, you know, tactile way of understanding specific new habits to build. So we, we tend to not just go in and generically teach people about the brain. It's usually in the service of being more adaptive, being more customer focused, you know, being more diverse and inclusive, having better conversations or some other, you know, more more organizationally focused agenda. 
So one one quick follow up because we ourselves are consultants and thousands of people that are practitioners also listen to this, and I'm guessing they're wondering how do you reach 120,000 people or five million people in a year with your ideas? It seems like an awful lot of scale for a handful of people. How do you do that? Yeah, I mean, my team is about 230 full-time people, North America focus, and about a quarter of our business split across EMEA and APAC. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and we, we focus on, we, we, we do, actually do all kinds of clients all the way down to an individual K-12 to school. So we have a bunch of smaller clients, but we do a lot of large organizations. So it's 64 of the top 100. And so, so you know, one client might be 140,000 people, another one might be 200,000, another one might be another, you know, 80,000. So it's, the work we'll do will tend to scale to a whole company touching every employee. So what we don't do is the classic kind of go in and do workshops. Uh, or very rarely, we might do that to kick something off at the top of the house, but that's not how you scale. And so this has been a big question for us for the longest time. How do you scale but not lose the impact? And uh, we think we've, we've, you know, we, we're really happy with our, our process there. You know, what we do is we define a few key habits people need to build, and when we measure if they've been built or not. And what we mm-hmm. find with the, the in-person workshop is about 50% of a target audience of any size will have an embedded habit, you know, a month or two after a program, um, which is pretty good. 50% yeah, is pretty good. Yeah, really good for habit yeah. formation. Yeah, no, that's that's our best possible work on, you know, workshops we've built for years and years and tweaked and tweaked. That's pretty good. Of 1,000 people, 500 of them now have a habit that they're really applying, at least one, usually many, but at least one. And a habit for us means they're doing something weekly really differently. It's really embedded, right? So that's fine. But what we find is doing things in small bites virtually – if you do it the right way and, and, and re-engineer it, is we can get that number 50% higher. We can get that number to like 75, 80, or even 90% of a large audience with a habit. So the least effective way, not just from a scale perspective, but from a habit activation perspective is actually the workshop. The, the best way we find is, is finding innovative ways to create insights at a grassroots level. And that's really the question. How do you facilitate insights across a whole com- a whole organization, you know, all at the same time? And there's lots and lots of different ways of doing that. That's really cool. That's so interesting. And how do you, how do you use technology or not to 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 help with the the scaling and the the virality of that? Yeah, this is this is one of those things that I that I go in huge swings. Mm. Um, <laughs> So we made the strategic decision a few years ago to be completely technology agnostic, and we literally don't have an engineer on the team. And so far, that's proved to have been a really good strategy because what we find, particularly with the larger firms, is they all have like all the platforms they ever want. Yeah, they've got a stack. Yeah, and they're not necessarily looking for a new platform. They're looking for change. And so we'll, we'll tend to integrate into whatever platforms they already have. And so what, what we've built is a, a platform of insights and habits across the things that companies care about. Mm -hmm. So an integrated platform of different insights and different habits where everything comes back to the brain. Mm -hmm. And so we're at a point now, you know, we're 25 years old. We're at a point now where a number of of our partner clients, you know, most of their leadership development is our work in one way or another. Uh, they're, They're drawing on our work so that everything's coming back to the brain, whether they're teaching an onboarding program or a conflict resolution program or inclusion program or a feedback program or a you know, setting goals or building strategy, you can actually bring all of it back to a few sure. core ideas. So it's it ends up being a, a platform of insights and content and 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 guides 
things like that. It's taken us, you know, 15 years to build that and still still building all the time. And so we, we literally don't have any technology at all in-house and we integrate into existing technologies. But I, I swing the other way sometimes. I'm like, oh, let's build a platform, you know, let's build a platform on top of existing things that mm-hmm. can give us insight and data. But, you know, people are kind of technology out and adoption totally. is challenging. Yeah. The new habit around adoption of a new technology is no exactly. joke. We but, know that. but, you know, the one thing that, that is real is people still have real time. Mostly people have real time, you know, conversations with their yeah. manager. And so we're interested in that as the channel more than technology. So how do you change the way people managers interact? And how do you do that with as little technology as possible versus how do you weave it in technology? So I don't know, the jury's out. We're doing well, but, um, can we scale to 50 million as opposed to 5 million you doing what we're doing? I'm not sure yet. We're thinking deeply about that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. The, the question that I am excited to ask you about just based on what I've heard so far relates to, relates to feedback. So, you know, I, I know enough about your field to know that a whole bunch of shit happens when we feel reactive or defensive or attacked in any way. And yet, candor and information and data about oneself inside of a complex system is a super important part of being able to adapt to Mm. that system. I am curious whether your work touches feedback and if you could tell us a little bit about, about the neuroscience of feedback. Oh, again, if we got three days. This is I mean, I would topic. like to have three days with you just based on the last 36 minutes. So, you know, carry on. <laughs> and we, I mean, we have a six-month program if you want to really <laughs> okay. get in. But the, um, the, I mean, the short answer, we, we've been studying this for literally 15 years. It's our longest area of research and application. And we've got, we did, we published two really significant, you know, serious pieces of research. We did a lab study on it, actually testing out what really happens with real humans and collecting real data. And yeah, it's a fascinating area. I mean, here's the thing that the, the brain is a feedback hungry machine. Like you mm. chop off feedback, you're in trouble. We, we, we don't just crave feedback. It's essential to the system, right? The, there's a network in the brain called the sensory motor cortex, sensing and moving. And the sensing part is much bigger than the moving part. You've got to know exactly where everything is to know mm-hmm. how to move it. Um, you're holding a cup of coffee. There's an enormous amount of feedback. Uh, weight and temperature and everything, right? So, so this, you know, the, people don't like don't dislike feedback. They just dislike feedback from other people. <laughs> um, <laughs> Such so, a good way of saying. That. Yeah, we, we. I mean, we have to get feedback. We can't stay seated or sure. standing or anything without. Like, we we crave feedback. It's totally, totally part of what we are. Right? What happens is feedback from other people creates a status threat, mm-hmm. which is you know, we, and we protect our status really carefully unconsciously we react you know someone gives us any kind of feedback even just a you know roll of the eyes anything we we react really strongly because it feels like a a status attack and we protect our status because our feeling of status in the in the communities that we're in not necessarily socioeconomic but sociometric status like where we are in the pecking order in the communities that matter to us i mean it correlates to length of life and it's not a metaphor it's it's a real thing um Lots and lots of different studies. So we, you know, we protect our sense of status because higher status is literally rewarding in the brain. We live longer. You know, it's good for creativity. It's intrinsically positive. Low status is painful. You know, it's, it's so so we really protect our status. So a lot of feedback is about the status threat that happens when you say, you know, can I give you some feedback? We did a big research project on this 
on behalf of Microsoft. We partnered with them, put a big team together. It was a few years ago now. And they basically said to us, look, you know, we've, we've had decades of feedback programs. Nothing seems to help. Tell us what we're missing and how we can solve the feedback problem. Because no matter how much we tell managers to give more feedback, they just don't do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and we've spent a lot of time on this. We, we put a big team together. We interviewed every expert we possibly could. We interviewed so many people. We studied about 40 different feedback models out there. We looked into the literature really seriously over like 50 years. And there's sort of some interesting findings in there. But the really, the big insight we had was when we reverse engineered what happens in the brain when feedback works. Mm. And it turns out there's a cognitive mechanism that's very, very, it's very cognitively taxing, right? When feed, when, for feedback to work, you've basically got to do something called mental contrasting. Do so some let's work. Say, yeah, you've got to do some work. And it's, it's, you basically got to hold in mind the way you currently do something and then hold in mind a different way of doing something, compare the two, make a choice and then make a plan to act on that choice. Mm. So, so that's like doing long division in your head. I was going to say that. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. And anything that, that just like distracts you in the tiniest bit just makes you just not do it. Right? You imagine you're talking to someone and you've got to do long division in your head. Like it's really, really easy to not do it. Um, and it's really hard to, to focus to do it. And if they're upsetting you, you're just not going to do it. So the challenge is, having a a feedback conversation creates a threat response, a status threat, and often an autonomy threat as well, which is that you you feel like the person's telling you to do something. They're trying to control you in some way. And often a relatedness threat, like you feel like this person's Mm -hmm. got a competing goal to you. And also it might feel unfair. Like, you know, so many things that really activate the brain negatively happen when someone says, can I give you feedback? And this, you know, these threat responses massively reduce the cognitive resources you need for this really cognitively rich task. And so our insight from deconstructing what happens when feedback works was like, you know, anything that reduces cognitive resources is going to inhibit feedback working. Mm. And we looked at all these 40-something models out there and nothing actually meaningfully reduced the threat response of feedback. Right. Nothing. Um, and we dug around, we dug around, we dug around, and at some point we had an insight that the one thing that could work is actually not to give feedback. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're like, okay, that's what's an that option. Mean? That's an option. Like, don't give feedback. And instead of that, ask for feedback. Mm-hmm. And the whole feedback mechanism switching from a giving feedback, you know, strategy to an asking for feedback strategy. And we we had this hypothesis on paper that people who ask for feedback have less of a status threat. In fact, it makes them look good less of an autonomy threat because they're choosing it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and less of a relatedness threat. So, you know, they, they, they've got now like a shared goal with the other person. They're not as defensive. And so in theory, we thought if people ask for feedback, it should be a lot less stressful. And we sure. tested this and informally and, you know, lo and behold, it's much, much, much less threatening. But then we set up a lab study a real lab study with real executives who didn't know what it was about and, and got a bunch of scientists, collect real data with about 100 people. And we discovered all sorts of amazing things in this study. One thing we discovered was that giving feedback is just as stressful as receiving it, often more so. <laughs> uh-huh. Sure. This is why managers don't do it, right? Giving feedback activates the threat response uh, just as much or more than for the receiver. And of course, we discovered that the receiver, you know, receiving feedback does get very stressed even if it's when, a, when it's from someone that doesn't really matter and it's something banal. Uh-huh. 
like right. just a random task. Sure. Right. So even a banal task from someone that doesn't matter, feedback activates a really strong threat response, similar to like you've just gone for a run in terms of heart rate. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. And for the person giving it, again, even if it's banal, it's a really strong threat response. So that was fascinating. The second thing that we discovered that was really rewarding to us because we confirmed a hypothesis, but we also put a number to it. We found that asking for feedback reduces the threat response for both sides by about 50%. Okay. So that's the, you know, that's the big punchline. And so we ended up building a whole strategy around asking for feedback, which turned into a, a solution at Microsoft called Perspectives, Microsoft Perspectives. And so people don't ask for feedback at Microsoft, they ask for perspective. Mm. And um, we developed a, a specific way of doing that and et cetera, et cetera. So, so for me, there was this really big insight from the science about a really different way to approach feedback. And this has now become a, you know, a key strategy for lots and lots of organizations uh, everywhere. But it, it all started with unpacking what happens when feedback works in the brain and recognizing yeah. if you don't solve for a threat, you really just, you know, the game's up. I love it when when the science matches the kind of lived experience because we have so many practices that we've collected over the years on the ready side that are about making the making it sort of a cultural norm to ask for feedback or to have moments and rituals about getting it and asking for it that are very directed by the individual, et cetera. But it comes more from a, a lived experience that that tends to work than a, a neuroscientific validation. So it's it's funny to see those two things start to stack up. What I'm what I'm wondering about is maybe the the rest of work. So you've talked about feedback, one example of something that is very activating and very problematic, the way we do it and the status quo. What are some other fundamental work habits, norms, patterns, ways of working that are just standard, you know, across the Fortune 500 that that don't really work the way our brains want them to work? That that maybe tax us or, or hold us back. Yeah, there's there's so many. I mean, one is uh, a big one is in terms of from a system perspective is the performance review, and we we published on this a lot starting um, over ten years ago. Uh, we wrote a piece called "Kill Your Performance Ratings," <laughs> which was pretty direct. And you know what we found is is performance reviews that anchor on a number have some some benefits to senior management. You know, they feel a little bit more certainty and a bit more control. But the costs of them are quite invisible and very large. And, mm. and the cost of that you know, number is a big, big status threat and a big sense of unfairness to, you know, huge, you know, to, to, to more than half the company feels really sure. treated poorly and really unfair. And when you think about it, you've got to give more than you've got to give more than half the company a B or a C right. rating. And you've hired people who always got an A their whole life. And you're essentially forcing them to say, well, you're a, you're a B player, you're a C player. And the C players might be people who've, you know, literally been the top of their class their entire life, and they're just they're really unhappy about it. And there might be no way for them to get to, a, 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 you know, an, an A um, unless they like stayed there for five years. It could be, you know, the way it's structured. So the the systems that ba- that anchor on a number feel inherently unfair. They feel like you have no control, and they, you know, they literally label people as a number which except for the people given the A, which is only a small percentage, is really, really unnecessarily, you know, stressful. So, so that, that's a big one. And so we've been helping companies for over a decade rethink their whole performance management strategy and essentially focus away from the technology, you know, focus away from the technology, focus away, focus away from the number, maybe even get rid of the number, which we helped a lot of companies do, and focus on the quality of conversations people have. And, Define how those conversations should look, 
what kind of frequency, what kind of flow, etc., and then make sure people are actually doing that. So, so we think it's about the quality of conversation, not about the quality of, of data of, of, of you know people's people's metrics. So that's that's one big one. Um, there's a huge huge gap in in how companies are going after bias mitigation as well. Mm. So it's obviously a big movement to address bias. This is a big topic, but it turns out. Uh, raising awareness of unconscious bias doesn't reduce unconscious bias very much at all. Hmm. Um, and that's basically because individuals can't do much about their own bias. Mm-hmm. So you know about bias, but all that happens is you see it in other people now. You don't right. see it in yourself anymore. <laughs> and everyone gets kind of annoyed. Fantastic. Yeah, great. We've, we've experienced some of that, sure. <laughs> yeah, so, so that's like companies go about that really the wrong way. We've got a really different approach to that. That's at a team level with some common language that teams help each other with. But that's a big one. Inclusion is another one. Companies go about inclusion by kind of calling out individual audiences and celebrating different communities. And it's great to celebrate difference, but there ends up being a, a pretty big backlash from other audiences. And we think that inclusion is something that everyone does with everyone, not something reserved for particular audiences. And that's, that can be problematic. That can create all sorts of, of, of uh, discomfort for people and that can be taken all sorts of ways. But essentially everyone, every race, color, age, creed, everything should be thoughtful about being inclusive with everyone, again, whatever they are. And if everyone's being inclusive with everyone, then you actually have inclusion. But as soon as you anchor it on specific people, you're by nature creating some exclusion, mm-hmm. and uh, so that's that's a you know that's a big one. So you know it's a whole lot more, but those are a couple of the big areas that we see companies really uh, really getting wrong. The other big one is learning, just you know anchoring on the workshops when you know you can do it virtually. If you do it right, it's not just fifty percent better in terms of habits; it's it's hundreds of percent better in terms of scale and speed and all that as well. So and cost. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. The other topic that we really wanted to ask, just because of how of the moment it is, is about hybrid work, remote work, flexible work, whatever you're calling it. Can you tell us anything about the actual science of flexible work and and what you're seeing so far in terms of its impact on capacity and motivation and organizations in general? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a complex issue. What I can say pre-pandemic is that you know, a couple of things that you can you can bank on pretty much, and one of them is that just giving people control over their work situation, you know, really significantly improves their performance. Like studies showing, just letting people personalize their cubicle was about a day a week more productivity. What yeah. that is wild to me. Yeah. So my troll dolls actually make me a better worker. Yeah. Yeah. All exactly. Right. So just personalizing your, your 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 cubicle, right? That's still you have to go to the office, right? You don't have that much sure. autonomy, but you've got a little bit of control. Still and so have there's to sit a lot in a of cubicle, which is a bummer. But yeah. I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. So just giving people more control is good. I mean, and and that's building on a a, a raft of studies over decades showing that a sense of control you know, increases length of life. I mean, it halved the death rate in a retirement village study, just giving people three banal choices over about a year, the, the death rate halved, like letting people in an aged home choose which plant, which art, where to put the bed. These people, like, was significantly healthier. Wow. Um, so there's a long history of studies showing that giving people a little bit more control of the environment um, has, has non-obvious, non-intuitive, you know, big effects. Um, you heard it here, folks. Yeah, that's one thing. The second thing is that this is an interesting challenge is that people are really, really different in how they want to work. 
And it looks like pre-pandemic, about a third of people believe they're most productive if they're in an office. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and they're probably right, right? That's where they're most productive. And it can be a bunch of reasons why. It could be that they're not productive at home or they're just an extrovert or there's a bunch of reasons why, but, but about a third of people are just desperate to be back in the office full time. And they wish everyone else was there, of course. But about a third of people believe just as, as, you know, as strongly that they're most productive working at home. And the interesting thing is for those people, they're also getting the benefits of, you know, better sleep, better exercise, better diet, better family time, you know, all these things. So, so, you know, these are, there's a pretty big difference, right? <laughs> third wanting to be at work, third wanting to be at home. And then you've got about a third who want to mix it up and they're most productive if they're going to the office a bit, coming home for a bit, doing all that. And so right now it's nowhere near those numbers. It's like most people want to be at home and people are being forced back into the office. And, you know, there's a lot of resistance and a lot of people voting with their feet. We saw a number like 5% a few months ago, people actually want to be back in the office. But a lot of that is fear of, you know, and relatively reasonable fear of catching COVID again or now monkeypox or just scared of humans after the last few years and, sure. you know, all sorts of reasons. But in normal times, I think we would get back to maybe 20, 30%, you know, wanting to be in the office. So, mm-hmm. you know, put those two together and you and you have something important, right? Like, do you really want to force people back into the office if right. giving them some choice, um, you know, gives them a day a week more productivity? Plus, the people choosing to work at home are are more productive as well, and the people choosing to be in the office are more productive as well. Exactly. So, so ideally, you want to give people the, the the choice, and then sort that out at a team level. That's what seems to make sense. Giving people the choice mm. is a perfect place to draw our conversation to a close because you have places to be and so does everyone else. So they can exercise that choice. Yes. Um, we would love to, you know, talk more about all these topics. As you said, some of these things could go for three days. So maybe we'll find an occasion to have you back at some point, but I just really appreciated what happened in this episode and it felt like it reinforced a lot of what we talk about here. Yeah, for sure. No, thanks for your interest in the work. And, you know, all I'll say is that, that having language for the brain, like the, the way autonomy works in the brain, you know, makes you like valid, not just validate, but, but prioritize and focus on, you know, the human things that really matter. And, uh, you know, you guys are in the human business as well. It's, it's having this language is really, really helpful, not just for buy-in, but for execution of habits. David, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Yeah, neuroleadership.com. It's the website, neuroleadership.com. My, my most recent book is Your Brain at Work. You can find that everywhere, lots of languages and audio and all that. Your Brain at Work. And then we have a, a, a podcast as well called Your Brain at Work that goes into all things organizational. Um, but neuroleadership.com is a good place. And then personally, um, some of the things I'm involved in, davidrock.net is the other way. So, yeah, thanks for the opportunity to share this with you. It's great to uh, great to connect and keep up the good work, you guys. Amazing. Thank you so much. Everybody go check out all of David and NLI's amazing content. And while you're on the internet, please go ahead and leave us a review. You know, we appreciate them. I just learned that to leave a review on Spotify is literally the click of one button. It's the button that has five stars though. So don't be confused, please. When you do that, that would be great. Thank you so much. Amazing. Uh, Quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us all sound good today. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. Change something.